You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. You are with Counterculture here with Marie. And of course, as we do this morning, every Wednesday morning, it is time for Media Matters with Marty. Good morning. Good morning, Marty. How are you? I'm good, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. You and I got together on the weekend on Sunday night for the Foundation Members Zoom. That was a bit of fun. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, everybody loved to see the Marty in real life. Well, <laughs> in Zoomy real life. They thought you looked yeah. young. Oh, that Foundation Club member club, I guess, is, is awesome. You know, I'd say to people who are listening, if, if you want to do anything to support us that's that's a great place to start yeah. and uh, I guess we're all feeling flush with the coalition yeah. uh, being formed this week that we might have played some small role in in some of those things on the table and it's a great way for people to be a part of that and and also the work starts now doesn't it Oh, it does. It does. So we had about 700 people. Uh, it was actually just clicked over. I saw it click over 700 uh, on I Sunday. I numbers with as many as that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, well. and Natalie Cutwell, she was emceeing and it was great, but it was so good. You're right, Rodney. It was so good to yeah. sort of get – Rodney was st- – I think I don't think his feet have touched the ground yet. I really don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, did you hear a show where he said, I wanted to take the coalition agreement to bed and cuddle it? <laughs> I know, and that disbelief, I don't know how you're feeling. I've got a lightness that I have not felt in six years. Yeah, but also I've got a real feeling of the importance of not continuing to be divided. And it it really, I mean, we'll get into what's in the papers. There's a fair bit of that. The sky is falling. We've just got to ignore that and reach out to people mm. and just refuse to be drawn into it. Yeah, and I think I mentioned it on Sunday too. You you know, there will be, I think as things progress and some things come out, because let's face it, the adherent censorship that has happened for the last six years, that overlordish type pressure from above is now being relieved somewhat. And I think that there will be a number of people that will have their eyes opened. And I think for those of us that are a little bit more awake to things, we have to have a sense of compassion and grace around yeah, accepting those people into those ideas and saying, hey, look, it's you so, look, it's we all get it wrong. Yeah. And you're uh, just and as I've much. noticed quite a change in tone mm. in in journalists already. Yes. I mean, you know, the one we both saw was Fran O'Sullivan, wasn't it? And and I think we both had the same reaction to that. It reminded us of that Simpsons episode where the news reporter Kent Brockman thinks that Springfield's being taken over by aliens and says, I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. That was the kind of vibe I got off. Got off oh, totally, Brand. particularly with the headline. So this is Fran O'Sullivan from Saturday's Weekend Herald. Radical or conservative, new government is both, but it was the opening paragraph. The vast ideological cloud which has permeated New Zealand politics and shrouded free speech for far too long has finally been punctured. And with it, your total silence on it, Fran. Yeah, I was just going to say, oh, have you finally found your whole punch, Fran? Yeah. Oh, good grief. Yeah, Yeah. and talking about they've confronted head-on the national anxiety over co-governance, the emergence of a dual society, and the ideology that has crept into education at the expense 
of ensuring our kids leave school with the competencies that will enable them to confront the, a challenging world. Yeah, too little, too late, Fran. Oh, I know. And the other one I love too is Luxon had to put up with a great deal of sour bagging from members of the commentariat since the election, some with vested interests from their own prior tussles with the political arena. Talk about overstating the obvious, you know, I mean, anywho. Yeah. It was nice to see Fran write some comedy for a change. It was good. It was a nice change of pace. She'll be talking about the WEF and the effect of having two WEF young global leaders on the uh, running of a country before you know it. Even if it is discussing its aftermath rather than the implications and ethics of it at the time, you know. You know how you get, if you were in Brownies and Scouts, not that I ever was, if you do certain achievements, they give you badges, badges of honour. I almost feel like we need to create our own media matters badges like the WEF badge and the cancel culture badge and to give to all of these writers and opinion piece holders to sort of say, oh, you've, you've earned your WEF badge. Yeah, well, I've often said we should probably uh, establish a parallel New Zealander of the Year award because the New Zealander of the Year and the, uh, the recognitions went to people who we just uh, often have seen doing all sorts of reprehensible things to our democracy and the health of our nation. Ashley Bloomfield moving on to try and do the thing to the world, along with Jacinda Ardern, you know, trying to stop people uh, having free speech in the world. <laughs> Oh, I know. So the nice thing is, is that there has definitely been that shift. And let's have a look at some of the positions and policies that may not have necessarily gotten covered, because there are actually a lot of little smaller things there that may have gotten overlooked. And uh, so other things like climate change stays out of outside of cabinet. I mean, James Shaw had it outside of cabinet, but environment also moves outside as well. You can see corporate Luxon came out. I think, with this negotiation and the makeup. It's the first time you've ever seen coalition partners receive so much, I'm going to use the word, careful, you ready? Equity right. <laughs> within, within a group. He's gone and pulled all these people, pulled Peters and New Zealand First and David Seymour and Act together to create a group to work together to move forward. And I think there has definitely been that theme. They obviously had discussed that at length during the negotiations that, okay, and I see more even said it, I think, was in Q&A or The Nation, it was one of them. He even said, look, we were fierce opponents on the campaign trail, but we're off it now and it's now time to to move forward. He's also said that uh, the respect that he had that they had for each other had grown over the process, which was a, a smart thing to say. I think the, the good thing, and, and this is where the coalition agreement and, and the, the noise from it so far has been better than I dared hope for, is my fear was we were going to get a corporate kind of amoral governance. I think we've got in both Peters and Seymour essentially a, a board of morals. So it's it's giving Luxon the ability to exercise that management while constraining it within a set of values that's often missing from the corporate world in all but the most grotesque virtue signaling. Yeah. And there's still yeah. a bit of that, you know, you've still got that fixation as he described it on on climate change. But the signal that we're going to prioritize energy resilience is is welcome. All these people gluing themselves to the roads. Yeah. 
just obtusely ignoring how dependent we are. I mean, it will be interesting to see how they go around that because Marsden Point is privately owned. The private owners of Marsden Point that decided to mothball it. So how are they going to do like a Rio Tinto type arrangement? Kiwi Rail thing, right? Yeah, or a Kiwi, or are they going to privatise it and bring it into the Crown fold? I mean, how they do that, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether they've got the money to do the latter, but... That will be very, very intriguing to see how they do it because I know with TY Point, and I think Andrea Vance actually did a really good, interesting article on TY Point and around the negotiations and the toing and froing between the previous government and TY Point to actually keep that going and, and Rio Tinto who own the smelter, who have done a lot of hardballing with the governments in terms of giving them breaks to keep the smelter open. Because let's face it, we're at the arse end of the world. We're at the arse end of their supply chain. It's not really in their best interests to keep it going. So that, you know, they do apply pressure. Those are all the sort of little finer points that they have to work out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's that thing that was similar to the Lord of the Rings, where it's an easy way of framing it. And the left always frames tax breaks as giving money to to the rich rather than just not stealing as much. And where the government's going to be really aware of our vulnerability is in our balance of payments deficit. So, you know, whether or not you don't get as much money for the power as you might have. And Andrea Vance said means that each New Zealand household has to pay an extra $200 a year. I doubt that figure if you if you line it up next to what happens if it just closes down. I don't think we're going to save $200 a year on power because there's not the means to transmit it. Yeah, just like how they framed uh, tax breaks for Lord of the Rings as corporate welfare, there's all sorts of benefits to New Zealand of having something to export in, in terms of, and that's before you even look at the 700 or so people employed mm. uh, at uh, TY Point. Yeah, exactly. And also that entire region too. You know, I mean, you and I are both from, you know, we're both from the same area. And gosh, I remember when the freezing works closed down in Gisborne, the big one before they opened the smaller one they've got now. I mean, and even, you know, when they were looking at potentially closing in Wairoa, I mean, that has a massive impact a massive impact on those communities. And so to be able to keep those places open, it's the beating heart often of a community. So it's important, you know, it's more than just the sum of its bricks and mortar. Looking at the new cabinet, I mean, there's, you know, not a huge number of surprises. We knew Nicola Willis would get finance. Chris Bishop, Housing Infrastructure, RMA Reform, Sports and Rec, so he'll be happy with that. He's a rugby man. Uh, Shane Retty, did you hear Shane Retty yesterday uh, with Hoskins? Uh, on some of the health reform. No. He was great. You know, he talked, he, look, one of the thing I loved is he said, look, we need to steer the ship and, and we need to keep, we need to settle things down a little bit. And he said, as much as I want to go in and change things, there has to be a little bit of period of stability there for the current workforce that is there. They can't cope with any more change. They've had so much change with this previous government. We just need to get our plans in place and actually bring them on board. Yeah, the like other measuring thing, the effectiveness of what you're doing for a start. Yeah, exactly. And then he also talked about how it was so lovely to have their families and everything at Government House for the swearing-in. And then as soon as the swearing-in was done in the press conference, he said, oh, I, I had to leave them, though. We had to go. We were straight into meetings and getting this started. Stop it. Instead yeah. of, you know, the drinky poos and the and what have you that would have probably have carried on if it were the other other crew. So anyway, I so, say so Reti was there. Uh, Simeon with Energy, Local Government and Transport. 
Erica, your lovely Erica Stanford, I know you're fond, uh, um, education, immigration. Do you know the one that really made me happy? Judith Collins. I've always liked Judith Collins. I think she blinked at the last minute and was pragmatic rather than conviction focused. I've spoken with, I spoke with a woman who was high up in corrections and she was saying Damien O'Connor was a nightmare to work for, just an awful, rude guy who'd just chuck his staff under the bus. By way of contrast, Judith Collins just absolutely on top of detail, back to staff, set high standards. I've always remembered that. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, Mitchell's got corrections this time round, but of course, Judith Codlin's uh, Attorney General, Defence, Digitising Government, GCSB, and in, uh, the Secret Service, Science and Innovation. She is the Minister of Space. Uh, she's also the Lead Coordination Minister for the response for the Royal Commission with the terrorist attacks in Christchurch. I'm just so pleased because it just because she is also one of the country's most effective electoral MPs. As you said, she just she gets on with the job. And I think that's really one of the themes for this government is actually getting onto the job, isn't it? Yeah, there's a big mess to clean up and and we're hamstrung by that extra $100 billion of debt. You know, that's we're not getting away from that. Uh, not without a great reset. No. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's what we have to understand is on the table. If we can't, we've got to work, work that out and we've got to start talking about these guys have allowed by these guys, I mean the people who print the money, the bankers, the IMF, the uh, Bank of International Settlements, all of those shady organisations you never hear too much about have allowed all this toilet paper money to get printed. And it's no accident that we've got $100 billion of debt, but precious little to show for it. I don't know how you spend $100 billion without having a few more buildings, but there we are. So Derek Chen gave his usual dry as a wheat bix without any milk overview of uh, what was going it's on. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> but then you flicked over the page. Then I flicked over the page. So once I sort of had my wheat bix with Derek, I uh, then the baubles of office median wage looks like small change. And then you have, oh, David Fisher, comrade, honestly. Yeah. The entire article was, the first paragraph sums it up, and I'm going to read the first paragraph. Now that Christopher Luxon is set to be sworn in as Prime Minister, his weekly pay packet will jump to $9,058.63 before tax. That's a healthy bump from the pre-tax $5,692.44 that he picked up as leader of the opposition. Either pay packet is a substantial hike from the New Zealand medium wage of $1,186.40 before tax. That works out annually as at $471,049 plus $22,606 for expenses for Luxon. Whoop-de-doo. However, it's a long way from Luxon's annual wage salary of $4.2 million when he was chief executive of New Zealand. So he's taken a job that pays him only 10% of what his chief executive job was. Really? They don't do it for the money, hun. Yeah, it always reminds me of Bob Jones when, when he said, well, you know, the thing about journalists generally is they're not paid very much money. And so, you know, to them, any sort of salary seems like it's terribly high. But in the context of things, you know, it's a small change, really, or something to that effect. Yeah, that sounds and, like uh, something he would say. Again, it's like, well, what about the $100 billion, David? 
You know, yeah. What, yeah. what about that? If, if these guys can manage not to, I mean, not only not to rack up $100 billion in six years of debt for which they've achieved precious little beyond what you'd expect to achieve for mm. spending $100 billion at the very least, uh, but they have to get it down. So whereas Squealer Robertson had the country on meth of inflationary debt, these guys have got to not only not have that, and I'll get to this in a, in a while because I've, I've written mm. a few points down that I wanted to cover, but, yeah, they've got to trim it back. They so, do. Well, the, the entire article was dedicated to how much these MPs are being paid and are they are out of touch? Are they out of touch with what normal New Zealanders paid? Now, you know what? I would have respected that article more if you'd actually taken the time to offset it and balance it with what the 50% of journalists that left journalism under the six years of the Labor government and went to work in the public sector for better conditions and more money. Uh, Swillier trough. And then we'll have the conversation, David, because that's where most of them went. I mean, what was the number? It was something like, it was was in triple figures for Waka Kotahi alone. Again, you've got to get back to that wonderful study that Dave Farrar carried out on uh, how left-leaning New Zealand journalists were relative to the rest of the country, far, far more likely to describe themselves as hard left by a factor of something like seven or eight times more likely. On the whole, about that, more left. So, again, I mean, it's nice to see them hopping around a bit and they know that they've got a tiger by the tail in terms of Winston Peters being now a leader in a coalition government. And hasn't he uh, sent a very clear message to our media classes, to our well, media classes? Yeah. He knows that it's going to play to the majority of New Zealanders who've had to read all this Marxist horse shit and see it be taught to children as if it's fact and if it's kind and if it's right. Yeah, Winston is uh, very good at uh, reading the wind and he knows mm. that uh, the media are on a hiding to nothing if they come after him too hard. Yeah, well, he's fired the shots now in, in a couple of press conferences. I mean, the nice thing about Winston too is that he's someone who he doesn't care. He doesn't care what they say about him in the sense that he they can take as many shots as he as they like. And in a way, he can almost be a deflector shield for Luxon and Seymour. I have a theory in terms of what we're going to see in the media in the next little bit. And this is what I want everyone to get prepared with and strap on if you ever dive dive into legacy media and and have a wee look. And I think I might need to So you don't have to? Yes, exactly. And I might even set up a scorecard on this. What we're going to see is a lot more Māori are being disadvantaged and that entire equity conversation, particularly around Māori and Pacifica, is going to increase exponentially. You're going to see some sad stories about um, really promising programs that got scrapped as a result of this. Exactly. Those hardship stories, we're going to see them come thick and fast because we didn't didn't see a lot of those hardship stories the last six years. Yeah, there are suddenly going to be families living in cars. We're happily in motels before, I don't know. 
Yeah, so we're going to see a lot of those hardship stories as if they've just materialised since the new government arrived. So you're going to see a lot more of those. You're going to see lots more stories around the disadvantage and the inequitable treatment of Māori and Pacifica. So those are two things. The other thing that you're going to see too is you're going to see a lot more climate hysteria. They're going to really grasp onto that and they'll... Anything that's going to look like, I mean, gosh, the wind will even change direction. Anything. They're going to pull in that sort of climate hysteria. And then the last thing that they'll do is anything that is pro-business or positive for business, anything that's going to try and increase that productivity to pull down that balance of payments and squeeze it, you know, get it back into a manageable level, will be seen as evil. And they will try and unpick it however which way that they can. And the first thing that they latched onto, of course, was the uh, smoke-free legislation. And Nicola Willis, that was her first sort of test. They they gave her a little bit of a push on that. And that was, I think, was it Tame or one of them uh, on those weekend shows? Well, she was good on that, wasn't she? She was really good. She was really solid on that. And it's, smoking is an interesting one. I mean, I, I've never smoked. I've always been an avid anti-smoker. But I'm also, at the same token, the last tranche of that legislation which was reducing the nicotine in cigarettes then and also too creating a ban an age ban that no one under the age of I think was it 35 or whatever it was if you were born before a certain date couldn't go in and buy cigarettes who in their right mind was going to try and police that really police grown-ups you know I mean it's just it was so ridiculous and, and it's in, completely and at the, the reality of it is is the smoking in terms of smoking socially is not as acceptable as it once was it is now up to those individuals to make those decisions and the and again here I, I was stunned to hear I think it was a Pacifica leader saying how dreadful this was this was going to ex, to affect Pacifica Amari and it's like so what are you, what you're wanting to do is actually have this oppressive law over those people because they don't have the ability to make good decisions for themselves, so you have to make it for them? Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Actually treat them with some respect and dignity and maybe bring them along on the journey. That could be a good way to start of helping reduce those numbers instead of just being the fist clamping down, the hammer clamping down on the population. I, I thought Willis actually handled that, handled that quite well. But that's mm. the starting. That's the start. It's the beginning. It's going to be interesting. By interesting, I mean painful. <laughs> and, and there are some people who are still in the pa- paper who who are, I mean, Mike Monroe. And I was saying to you before uh, we started, when I'm seeing Chris Hipkins on TV, when I'm seeing those Olean apparatchiks like Mike Monroe, when I see them and I hear them, I just think, just go away, although those aren't the words I used. Yeah, he's just just willing on discord. So he's describing the coalition. It will be led by a gung-ho prime minister who promises to get cracking and deliver out, deliver outcomes, having not yet learned the under-promise, over-deliver mode of operation. And there's a guy who was a former chief of staff for J- Jacinda Ardern. It's just saying it without irony. He was the king of over-promise, under-deliver. What maybe he isn't factoring in is that if you're not just a Marxist student politician, you might be capable of some delivery. Careful, because they're going to have to change the yardstick from actually delivering an outcome as opposed to what was spent. (gasps) Yeah. 
Mike Monroe, go away. Go and drive a forklift in a pack house with Trevor Mallard. Oh, can we start a petition to get Trevor recalled? He's got to be recalled. I've, oh. I've said this before. That guy. I know. He just encapsulates everything that's bad about New Zealand politics. And the idea that he's representing us in Pākehā, Hawaii Island is just unbearable. I know. It is unbearable. Honestly, it, giving Trevor Mallard that position in Dublin was a li- literally like buying a toddler who's thrown a massive tantrum, completely embarrassed you in the supermarket, and then the checkout operator gives them a lollipop. Yeah, worst speaker ever, ever. Anyway, to finish off on the Saturday Herald, I did actually glance over at Chanel's column on the Sunday, and mm. because he was talking about the decision of Victoria University. It was actually, I, I thought, a re- pretty reasonable column. You yeah, know, reasonable I column. But talking about it, my husband and I had this conversation around it because, of course, he's now studying full-time and he's studying completely remotely. And so what Victoria University have done is that they did have remote learning, obviously with COVID, and then COVID uh, has now lifted. And in the law school, they are wanting to bring students back into lectures. There has been a pushback from the student body saying, well, actually, that isn't equitable, particularly for disabled students and that the process to apply for an exemption to be able to access the recordings was overly bureaucratic and there are students with a hard hardship and cost of living that have to prioritize work over attending lectures so it's that conundrum of when is it you give them a hall pass to not be sit in class basically And so, of course, Chanel is sort of doing it from the Marxist sort of standpoint that, no, this has to be equitable and you can't have it and blah, 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 blah. So Cottrell, interestingly enough, had also obviously seen that decision. And he wrote his piece, because, of course, he's looking at this from a business and productivity lens. So Saturday's Herald, working from home doesn't always work. I am someone in one form or another has worked independently a lot Uh, at home or, well, yeah, primarily at home or on the road for more than 25 years, closer to 30, right? For me, it's normal because I've been doing it for so long. But I really did appreciate some of the things that he had in this article because I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with it. So he says here, part-time jobs and cost of living pressures have been the fact of student life for as long as student life has existed. They're the very burdens that once carried help equip our young people for the stresses of modern day life after their studies are completed. I'm all for making it easy for people to get an education, but I fear that we're missing a few things here. In particular, the benefits of attending university are not limited to what's learning during lectures. For many students, a part of the university experience includes the opportunity to live in a new town, to experience different surroundings and meet new people. The chance to move away from parents and stand on your own two feet provides an added set of lessons that, for many young people. It's called growing up. Being forced to meet new people and develop new relationships while outside your comfort zone are critical skills that don't get developed while living at home and going to the neighbourhood high school where you've known everyone for five years or more. They're also critical skills for life. In many cases, the university experience is the first time we're forced to encounter such experience and develop such skills. Mm. Yeah, those relationships that you make at uni provide a, a mycelia 
network that uh, allows information sharing, team building. I thought, you know, he got more specific about improving productivity and by saying it's, it's a function of better skills, improving efficiency and using technology better. But it's also about our attitudes to work. It's about teams of people who achieve more by working together, working better, smarter and focusing on outcomes. It's about showing up at work, ready to work. And those little things are so important. Uh, I mean, I've I've taught quite a number of people to work. It's not natural. And I mean, I remember getting out of university and starting work and just realizing there was so much I didn't know how to do, in, including talking to people, getting mm. on the phone, asking for appointments, uh, things like that. And and there, there are a set of skills that particularly are, are young people are, are struggling enough with that monotone voice so many of them talk in from mostly texting rather than having conversations. Yeah. Um, and, and also the so the other bit, little bit of news that I just heard wafting around the last few days is around these COVID babies, which are all the preschoolers are sort of that early childhood age who are now suffering developmental delay because they have been separated from other children and, and the learning that they get through interaction and play in the early childhood space is so important for their development. Especially people in masks. I mean, what would that have done to them? Exactly. I used to, when I was wearing no mask to the supermarket, and I was probably at one point one of two, sometimes one of one, mm. I'd see kids see me with just wide eyes, just this, just this uh, amazed look on their face, and I'd smile and wave to them, and a smile would slowly creep onto their face. Yeah. Their mothers would often be, you know, wide-eyed and terror and disgust but you know they couldn't necessarily see that no well I had uh, see I refused to wear a mask the entire time didn't do it at all so what I did as well as I took it one step further I went out and brought about two or three very very bright lipsticks and made sure that whenever I left the house the lips were on full on and right. anywhere I went I had the biggest shit-eating grin you've ever seen in your entire yeah. life to just at least spread a little bit of a smile. Yeah, I have to admit, I did love that whole kind of big white of the eyes that you would yeah. get above the diaper with the like, she's smiling at me. It's like, yeah. yep. We, when it got further along, I was very fond of oh, For some reason, I always picked on tough-looking Maori dudes if I saw them with a mask on their chin. Just say to them, what are you doing with that on? Do you like being told what to do? If you stop doing what you're told, they'll stop trying to tell us what to do, mate. Get it off. Yeah, indeed, indeed. The other thing that I think Cottrell has touched on with this too is the fact that, and again with these children, so these children are not learning to, to develop those skills. And you forget that that is a set of skills. There is a whole big set of skills that you learn once you leave school. Now, I didn't do university. I went through high school and then I got a scholarship and was – went off to become an exchange student. Now, I had never left the country. I had to get a passport, educated in little old Gisborne, but the family managed a farm in the in the boondocks, and I ended up going onto one of the largest military bases in the United States at a time that we'd just gone nuclear-free. So it was, you know, it was it was a little bit we fraught with challenges. We haven't much about that. That uh, sounds – whereabouts was it? I was just outside of Dayton, Ohio, and I was living, uh, I had one family initially, and then I had to switch to another, moved in with a woman who, which was not 
the norm, but she was a solo mum. She had uh, three kids and she uh, still amazes me now because she was in her early 30s when I moved in with her. And she worked for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which and I lived in the tiny town that was literally engulfed by the base. So it was the service town for the base. The high school, uh, two-thirds of all students at that school were the students of military personnel. There were girls at that school who were in my senior year who were married to servicemen on the base. So they had transferred there as Air Force wives. Mm. It was a different time. But the skills that I learned in that year, you had to cope with things and and learn those sorts of skills. Those are skills that I carry with me today. Whereas I look at this all this remote learning and the lack of interaction, personal interaction, that is actually, it's surprisingly dangerous. And I don't think people realise how much you lose. Well, it's I've a always... tiny proportion of young people who are actually self-motivated enough to responsibly work from home. So yeah, and, and to pretend otherwise is disingenuous, and it's actually really dangerous for young people. I do need. I mean, it's it's tough enough employing young people when you've got to pay them the minimum wage when they're not worth it at, at the level it's at, and so you have to give them boring jobs because that's the only way you can recoup your money. So you can't teach them the sort of skills that are needed to to get them actually earning the money and then be going beyond it. Mm. But also the all of the anxiety that so many employees uh, employers feel around oh, the, the risks of of being accused of of inappropriate behaviour. Although certainly the easiest way to avoid that is just to be very very careful. Yeah. But you know that, that doesn't uh, necessarily protect you from false claims or something like that. And also the low threshold that a lot of young people feel for bullying. I mean, oh. We've spoken before about growing up with uh, grandparents who were in the Second World War and surprise, uh, survived the Depression. I was used to a fairly low threshold of ass kickery. Well, so both our boys, oldest one has had a job now for just over a year. The youngest one has now um, got the same job. I've got both my boys working in restaurant kitchens as dishwashers. Great. Same, same restaurant. Well, and if anybody, any listeners out there, all the ones that have worked and restaurant kitchens I can I can feel you nodding from here if you want to get rid of teenage snowflakery a restaurant kitchen is the place to do it there is rules there's hierarchy and there's no room for bullshit yeah. because that's how they roll and the yeah. skills you learn in a commercial kitchen uh, I've worked in several at that age and they are skills for life and my boys actually love it yeah, you can, and you can do a deal with them and say, hey, look, you know, you're not going to get any blowback for uh, forcing accountability or vigorous urging to increase productivity. Sexual harassment, I'm going to take a very dim view of. So productivity. So I thought the cultural um, around that productivity was excellent. And essentially, he's just saying that unless you're one of those very few people that can be disciplined to be able to work unsupervised or at home because those distractions are real and look I've done it but man it's a muscle it does take a lot of work to be disciplined to do it I know you you do a lot of it now with our work that we do here with RCR my husband's now studying full-time but he's incredibly driven so he can do it so we know that we're outliers in this but I wasn't always like that I mean the temptation to 
when I first started, you know, you'd look around, you think, oh, that washing needs folding, or I need to put the, you know, walk the dog, or I need to put the, this out uh, on the line. All it's, those it's urgent so but not important things uh, yeah. just come crowding in on you. And yeah, as I said, it's not it's not a skill that uh, all of us are born with. I know I certainly wasn't, and I've oh man. I've done some procrastination in my time, Buskin. Well, you said you'd done a little bit of work in that space. You made some notes around that productivity space. What was some well, of the I, things that you what dug I out? Did, what I did uh, was I made some notes upon the arrival of this new coalition government. I made some notes on what I thought they need to do that maybe they're not necessarily doing enough. I guess what I'm feeling is missing at the moment from the messaging which, you know, it's early days, obviously, but I hope they can get around to this, is that we need one of those ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country moments. There's plenty of hidden productivity within each Kiwi. You know, all of us could employ more people. We could help more of our neighbours. We could build resilience, drive improvements to education. What we need there is permission and also some structure. Not necessarily the government doing it, but some some work on best practice. We also need to have the issues that we're facing as a nation brought into sharp relief, basically more of a clear vision of a better New Zealand for everyone. They need to talk that into existence a little bit more. They need to um, re- rewrite the story. They need to Yeah, economically, it, socially, environmentally, and we need the why to go with the how, basically. The old chestnut that I brought up several times of features tell benefits sell, often accused Christopher Luxon of being all uh, features and not enough benefits. And alongside of that, the government needs to help set things up that they're not managing. And whether that devolution goes back to local government, which they've signalled, I think New Zealand First are good on that, or better yet, back to families and individuals. I I think of it as a trellis economy. If you can get some structure and this is what we're going to do, this is what we want, then within that structure, there appear niches for people to start businesses. And you could even make a system where you helped people do that by minimising paperwork and giving them the the basics. And I guess the second point is, and this gets back to what I was saying before about the debt. You know, for the past six years, the, the Labor government have run New Zealand on inflationary debt that has been the economic equivalent of methamphetamine. The wailing we're hearing right now that we've spoken about is the equivalent of the painful withdrawals that are being experienced for the herd of pigs who had their snouts deep in the trough of that extra $100 billion of debt we're now faced with. And and the key to any successful recovery from addiction is faith that things are getting better, a celebration of your little milestones and wins. So they're going to have to build that into what they're doing. We also need to change our friends. (laughs) <laughs> so there, there are many in the media, you know, as we said, who are saying, oh, you're no fun anymore. Just have a taste to get through this withdrawal. You know, it wasn't so bad. Why are you giving in to other people telling you what to do? All of those toxic friends that you just got to get rid of. So New Zealand perhaps should uh, think of Reality Check Radio as, as our sponsor, you know, getting us, getting us through this tough time. And there'll be a time when we can look back and and wonder why we couldn't see how degraded and unhealthy we were. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we've got to have a vision of things getting better. We've got to celebrate our little wins and be a bit kind to ourselves. The third thing I thought of was 
They've got to stop being afraid of just slamming Marxist appropriation and manipulation of language. They, they can't play on the chessboard that these guys have expected us to play on or, or needed us to play on for the whole bullshit show to work. Yeah. Um, I heard Christopher Luxon tell Mike Hosking that they were going to scrap the fair pay agreement. You know, yeah, we're going to scrap the fair pay agreement, but which Labour bought in as a payment to their union paymasters, basically. Plenty of people li- listen to that and just hear we're scrapping fair pay. And what he needs to say is that it was just more double speak because ensuring everyone was paid the same is anything but fair because some people are more productive than others. And if people are free, they're not equal. And if they're equal, they're not free. Mm. It was yet more cut before the horse nonsense. That, well, that, it, like some pig, some pigs are more valuable oh, than other pigs, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, normally the economy improves and wages rise. They kind of flip that. They do it the other way around. Normally, the government makes progress and the media critiques that. But you know, the previous government paid the media to tell citizens they were doing a great job. They put politics upstream from culture. They told us that ugly was beautiful, that victims are heroes, that the suspension of democracy was democratic, that opposing race-based law was racist, that lies were truth. We've got a fair bit of psychological recovery to get through from that. They've got to take that seriously. If, If we don't talk openly about what we're facing, if we don't value truth, we can't make the progress we need. Oh, and the level of censorship too. The other great lie that we were told, this will be the most open and transparent government in this country's history. Right. Remember that from 2017? Uh, oh, there was that horror. Did you see that? It was the three news thing where uh, after Winston Peters basically said they'd been bought and paid for, <laughs> that $55 million didn't influence us and neither did the full rack price advertising that uh, we were paid probably over $100 million for. There was a there was a an article by Sasha Boroshenko uh, in Monday's New Zealand Herald, where she was talking about, well, she was quoting the misinformation project, which is all you kind of need to know. But she said, for example, fake news is a slogan. It's not only misleading; it's also an oxymoron. News is inexplicably linked to information that's verified and in the public interest. A journalist who fails to meet those standards could find themselves without a job. I think you're right, but not for the reasons you think you're right. You're putting the moron into oxymoron there, Sasha. Yeah. But- so, well, the other thing too was that News Hub story uh, that was on a couple of uh, a couple of nights ago. Should we have a quick listen to that? Because well, let's have was, a listen to that because it was a perler. The lack of awareness. A new government was sworn in today, but the old Winston Peters turned up, accusing the outgoing government of bribing the media, and he issued an indirect order to state broadcasters to stop using Te Reo Māori. The sense of the occasion perhaps lost on Winston Peters, who minutes after swearing to be a true and faithful Deputy Prime Minister launched straight back to form. First flight pressures. Turning our question about his Te Reo policy into a direction to the state-owned broadcasters, TVNZ and RNZ. How quickly do you expect government departments and government agencies to to act in well, removing Te Reo Māori? With TVNZ and RNZ, which are taxpayer-owned, understand this new message. 
we'll see whether these people, with the media and journalists, are they independent? Well, that's not fascinating. I've never seen the evidence of that last three years. Outlandishly and incorrectly claiming the government had, quote, bribed the media through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. Repeating for effect. No, no, you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. Get it very clear. His new boss, completely unawares of his 2IC's antics, just stoked to be part of the occasion. Every minister understands the responsibility that they have. The responsibility of running a country. Hmm. The outrage, the pearl clutching. Oh, I know. Now, just be aware, people, that we have edited that for brevity. But yes, the pearl clutching. And speaking of pearl clutching, I did send you a text over the weekend watching Mihinarangi Forbes on the panel on The Nation. And she even wore pearls. She didn't, yeah. I was way. I was like, clutch them, Mihi, clutch them. I know you, you're desperately wanting to clutch Gosh, them. She's ghastly in some ways. It's just so cold. They are not going to know for a while because they have become, the, when I say they, particularly the press pack at Parliament, the political pack, they have become so accustomed to being literally having a lolly scramble every time they go to Parliament, to now finally be pelted with lumps of coal from the likes of Winston with a little bit of reality. I mean, they're going to have to harden up. Well, you know, the, the last point that I made about what the government needs to do is embrace compassion and have it as a brand. You know, it's vital that the new government destroys the narrative that so many New Zealanders unquestioningly believe, which was that the Greens, Labour and to party Māori are kind. You know, a cursory look at the before and after stats shows this to be a lie. I've spoken before about short-term kindness and long-term kindness and returning to my methamphetamine analogy earlier, if someone's struggling with a destructive addiction, the kind thing to do in the short term is to give them more meth. That's the kindest thing you can do in the short term. In the long term, the kinder thing is helping them to get treatment, perhaps even by calling the police and having them arrested. You know, if they're doing real crazy stuff, forcing people off benefits and into work is long-term kindness. Getting people out of gangs is long-term kindness. Forcing kids to attend school is long-term kindness. Allowing employers to fire employees more easily is long-term kindness because it builds stronger businesses. Enforcing accountability for public spending is long-term kindness, and it needs to be spoken about as such. There's, there's a great post by Zuby. Um, I love Zuby. Yeah. He talked about victim mentality. When I was watching, I watched Marai after Q&A in The Nation on Sunday, and uh, I read this and I just thought about Mihirangi Forbes and Scotty Morrison, you know, saying, oh, you know, all those Māori MPs need to cross the floor, basically bring the government down. And this is what Zubi said, if you're confused by why victim mentality is so attractive, number one, it provides a permanent alibi for personal failures. Number two, it attracts attention. Number three, it generates sympathy. Number four, it acts as a social currency with like-minded people. And number five, it disguises negative traits and actions as virtues. And I think that's what they've got to get through as they're being told they're being anti-Māori. It's mm. like, nah, bae, we're just getting you off that drug. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That, that and mentality drug. Well, and to that end, I mean, you know, Dr. Shane Reti has, for the longest time, they've said he's been sort of the lone Māori face there, but now they've got Tama Pōtaka. And I thought to myself, who is this Tama Pōtaka? Who is this good looking, bald, brown brother? I need to know who this man is. He's freshly minted, he's lawyer. He won that Gareth Sharma seat in Hamilton West on the by election. And he won, retained that seat convincingly this time round. He is really impressive. You know, he, I looked him up, Ducks of Tarte College in 1993. Uh, he's worked for both Time He's, got, horsepower. he's got serious horsepower, not only in the uh, legal sphere within uh, everyday New Zealand framework, but also the Māori framework as well. Want so, to watch? Call it now. Future PM, do you reckon? Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about him, but he certainly got. Let's put it this way: he's not a teacher or a unionist. So yeah. I'm, I'm good with either of those. You know, I'm good with the fact that he's something a bit different, and I'm loving the fact you throw him with with Retty together with Jones, Peters, and Costello, and all all of these are in cabinet. So well, you've got five so, but, powerful Māori in cabinet, yeah, and most Kiwis aren't anti-Māori at all, even if we're characterised as such. We want fewer Māori in prison. We want to see the uh, education achievement come right up. We want to see the health uh, outcomes better. But when you think you can do it by blaming someone else for your problems, that's not kind. No. I hope they start thriving. And, And, you know, there's... I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Māori leader who was uh, in charge of uh, the Eastern Community Trust's uh, asset base. And and for a long time, they weren't giving out much money, but they were growing a a big ball of capital. And uh, they were criticised for that in much the same way as Iwi are criticised for not giving more money to Māori. He, He drew that parallel, and it was one I hadn't thought about. He said a lot of them are getting to the point now where there's significant enough businesses to be pumping. And, yeah, well, you uh, just have to look at Naitahu and you just have to look at Tainui for that example, really, don't you? I'm not threatened by that at all. Great. Mm. But we've got to reacquaint ourselves with some basic shared values. Yeah. And we've just got to stop saying, oh, you know, young people are stealing because, you know, the land got taken off them or anything like that. Yeah, I had land taken off me. Well, I think it goes back to your point earlier too, you know, that whole, men, you have to change your mindset from, as opposed to what can your country do for you, what you, you can do for your country. And it's that individualism, isn't it? That sense of self-reliance. And, and that's many- the heart of the debate about the treaty. I mean, there, there's that claim, well, you know, by tino rangatiratanga, uh, you know, the English version meant, hey, everyone, an Englishman's home is his castle kind of thing. You've got the right of ownership. But, you know, for us Māori, it was more, uh, you know, that the chiefs still got to tell their tutua, you know, the commoners what to do. This is where Seymour's getting his bill to debate the treaty supported the first reading as being hailed as a failure. But just getting that debate is so important. Getting it, you know, Christopher Hipkins saying, oh, you know, they're going to have a debate that will be very divisive. You know, the implication of that is, well, we closed down debate because we thought that that wouldn't divide Kiwis if we just controlled the messaging, yup, yup, that's what it is kind of thing. 
Yeah, indeed. Well, it will be. We will be watching everything very, very closely. And one of the things that I know I'll be looking for, other than the fact that of my prediction of where the media will go in terms of what they will squeal about, but also societally, I think now that we do not have the tentacles and the invisible pressure from our parliamentary system pressing down on us uh, as a society, that there is almost now an unspoken permission to many people in the middle who've been just quietly too scared to say anything because they don't want to run the risk of offence or they don't want to run the risk of even something greater, i.e. our medical workforce. So looking, it will be one of the things I would love to see once things get settled is the number of one's Say, for example, medical workforce who will then actually go to the to the ministry and say, "Look, here are some issues we experienced. We're telling you this now. We tried to say it before, but their way of dealing with it is enforcement." The, the, the stories that'll come out are, are just horrifying. Yeah, I watch mean, the space on that. They they let ACC um, staff off getting vaxxed in pretty high numbers for a reason. They were oh, getting yeah. a lot of phone calls. Yeah, that one went to the wire. I know that went to the wire because I had someone with an ACC and it literally went. I think that's, you know, those exemptions they talk about. I think that they ended up applying one of those blanket exemptions over ACC because they were going to lose too much of the workforce. And we've got to we've got to buckle up for that ride. I mean, it's easier for those of us, I guess, who have been saying it the whole time probably used Facebook more in the last six years than I had before, just so no one could ever say to me, well, if you knew that or thought that, why didn't you say something? Mm. So I'm I'm looking forward to having maybe a bit of a Facebook break. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I had, look, um, Aotearoa Farm was built out of my year of discontent on Facebook. And in case you didn't catch it this morning, we have now had a rebrand. Winnie Ben has been down at the front gate. Tapping in the new sign for Kiwi Farm that he's been keeping safe in the back for the last six years. Can't wait. Yeah, no, it's all good. Hey, look, as always, it's been an utter joy. This has been Marty Gibson with me here for Media Matters. And remember, if you've got feedback for Marty and I, uh, I read out some the feedback earlier with the lovely Liz. If you do have some feedback for us, 2057 is the text number. And of course, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Right, well, we'll have, it'll be interesting. We're going to have to get our scorecards out for next week, I think, Marty. Yeah, and we'll start getting uh, our New Zealander of the Year nominations uh, yeah. ready. I, I think that's a go on that one. But yeah, as always, it's been a pleasure and keep up the good work, Marie. I know you spend a lot of time doing this and it's great for New Zealand. You're a true patriot. Have a great week. Hey, it's just nice to have a partner in crime along for the ride. So thanks for that. Amen. Cheers. And we don't disappear, of course. Woke News of the Week is coming up and there's some real cracker stories this week. All that and more here with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.